Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning. Do grab yourselves a seat. Um, my name's Andy, if I haven't met you and you're visiting, um, thank you for being with us. Um, I'm going to start in a slightly different way, well, this isn't that different a way, I'm going to pray, but we're going to have a slightly different kind of Bible reading today, just to let you know. But as we were praying earlier in our pre-service prayer, um, just before the service, that everyone is invited to, by the way, we start at 10 past 10, it is the prayer meeting, the weekly prayer meeting of the church. Um, so if you feel like you want to be praying for this church, that's the best place to be. Whoever laid out the chairs today was prophetic because they put out 14 chairs and 14 people came, which was superb. So next week, 50 chairs. Um, but from Psalm 145, uh, verse 14, I think I, I'd love this to be what God is going to do today. It says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Lord, thank you that whatever posture we approach you in today, whether we are falling down or whether we are down and need lifting up, you will catch us from falling and you will lift us up. You will lift our heads as we discover, rediscover, remind ourselves of the glories of your incredible son, Jesus, who he is, where he is, what he's doing, we will experience this. Lord, I know that many of our church family at the moment feel like they're falling. There's political systems that just don't work. There's all sorts of chaos. There's situations and circumstances that it feels like things are spiraling out of control, but you're the God who will put out your hand to rescue us, and you will catch us. And Lord, to some who are bowed down under hardship, under strain, stress, mental pressure, physical illness, whatever it might be, you will lift our heads today. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to do your work amongst us in your power and your might. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible or a phone with a Bible attached, uh, we are looking right at the end of our 1 Peter series. We've been going through this letter for quite a long time, um, and we are coming to the end, and I am dragging it out even further for you, because we could have easily finished uh, in this one talk, but I'm dragging this over two sermons, because I think actually there are two points that I'd like to make over two weeks. Today is kind of a summary of the whole letter and of the whole message of 1 Peter itself. And the verse is this. It is chapter 5 of the letter written by Peter to a group of Christians in different small communities around the area. He's probably writing from Rome. And he says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. That main phrase, I think, summarizes P- 
Peter's approach and his goal for them, the original audience, and probably down through the ages for us. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And when you come to New Testament passages and you want to perhaps see them with a bit more imagination, you want to understand them in detail or a bit more depth, it often helps to go to the Old Testament, to Old Testament stories to help you. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says this about stories in the Old Testament, which were very much about the experience of Israel. But he says this, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So he is writing about what Paul is saying is those amazing stories that you read about in the Old Testament that seem so alien to your lives, your normal daily lives, they can actually be huge lessons. If anything, the way that they're written down is as an example for us who perhaps live less interesting lives than wandering through the wilderness or fighting against giants. We're living our uh, desk jobs, we live our basic lives, going to Sainsbury's at the weekend. Those stories are examples for us in the day-to-day. And uh, to illustrate this, I'm going to use a more dramatic Bible reading than I would usually. Um, and uh, you can be the judge whether it's a good idea or not. So if we can play the video. In Israel, the people were going about their daily business as usual. On the outskirts of the city, in a remote field, a group of laborers were harvesting a meager crop of peas. Suddenly, a shadow fell on that pea patch from the hills as hundreds of Philistine soldiers appeared. Armed in full battle gear, fear struck the hearts of the people. These farmers were mere peasants with no hope against a professional army. Remaining in that field would mean almost certain death. They looked down at their pea patch situated on an insignificant plot of land, and they realized that it was not worth risking life and limb to defend this ground. They dropped their farming tools and ran for their lives. This would have been the end of the story, but unfortunately for the Philistines, there was one man in the field that day who was not just a peasant or farmer. He was a warrior. He was one of David's mighty men. Shammah was perhaps one of the greatest warriors who has ever lived. And this was to be his most glorious battle. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, some of you are already disappointed that I've been so dramatic and macho with my Bible reading. And some of you are going to be disappointed that I won't live up to that level of drama and macho-ness in my preaching. So sorry to all of you. But 
It's amazing what you can make from two verses of the Bible. This is from 2 Samuel 23, verses 11 and 12. It's a short story about this man, Shammah, who had to make a split-second decision about what he was going to do under enemy attack. And I find it interesting, if you have a look at the words at the bottom of the screen, this is where the Apostle Paul carries on. He says, look, you can take Old Testament stories that are so dramatic and profound, and what is it that we might want to learn from such things? Well, he repeats three times here, no temptation has overtaken you. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. There's a huge amount to learn about temptation. The temptation that you feel inside of you, the temptation that comes from outside of you, just normal daily life for a normal daily Christian, we can learn some lessons. So what do we want to learn about? What was the first temptation? Well, go back to that dramatic story. Temptation number one. This is Shammah's split-second decision to decide, was this pea patch worth defending? This is the line in 1 Peter. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm here. Stand firm in it. Shammah had that decision as he saw the Philistine army coming over the crest of the mountain. He had a split-second decision. Is this pea patch worth it? Because in that moment, he could have run away with everyone else, and I'm sure there were some other pea patches around the area, or he could have just started his own. A few months later, when everything has died down, if he really loves pea patches, he can make his own, can't he? So why stand in this one? Because the thing is, if he bothers to stand in this one, as we saw at the end of the video, the whole thing's going to be ruined anyway. All of the pea plants are destroyed by this oncoming army. So he's going to have to regrow the whole crop. If that's really what he cares about, why is he standing so firm? He's got a split-second decision. Should I stand firm here? And you've got a split-second decision throughout your life. Should I stand firm here? Is this the true grace of God? Is this worth defending? And initially, I'm talking about Christianity, the religion of Christianity, or this version of Christianity, perhaps. Because there's a lot going on in society and culture that would say, no, 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 this old-fashioned, ancient version of Christianity or believing in God is very out of date and not worth defending. And you've got a split-second decision to decide, do I stand firm here or not? I think the critique is best put by Ricky Gervais. Very cynically often in um, interviews, he will say something along these lines, that yeah, 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 there have been nearly 3,000 gods so far, but only yours actually exists. The others are silly made up nonsense, but not yours, yours is real. You may have heard critique similar to this. There's so many religions out there. There's so many ideas of God. Why could you possibly think that yours is correct? The first thing that Ricky doesn't do, I think, in, is show humility or a knowledge of philosophy. Because really what he should be saying is there are more than 3,000 ideas about God out there. Everyone has an idea about God. 
whether they think that God exists or doesn't exist, that is a, philo that is a philosophy. That is a belief. There are more than 3,000 beliefs out there, and we have to be humble to acknowledge ours is one of them. But then Ricky's main point is that, that th this incredible variety, the fact that there are so many different ideas about God out there, must be proof that none of them exist, that God doesn't exist. If there's loads of ideas about God out there, then God can't exist. And this is where I challenge Ricky on his zoological background. I think he's got zoology training like I do. And it's in the first year in zoology that you learn about something called Batesian mimicry in nature. You can see it up there. There is the wasp, the hatred of all British picnickers. The wasp is dangerous and can sting you. And these other sneaky little creatures, hoverflies and other things, have learned that the wasp now, I'm going into, if you're an evolutionist or biologist or zoologist, I am skimming over the surface, so don't get bogged down in detail. There are other creatures out there who think, hmm, if I could look like that wasp, then maybe those big scary birds won't try and eat me. And so you have a multitude of varieties of what's called mimics, mimicking the wasp, but they're not dangerous in the slightest. Those little hoverflies that just stay there out in the, out in the garden or out in the park, they're harmless. But the wasp is dangerous, and the whole point here, what I'm making is, the very presence of mimics in nature is not disproof that there is an original, it's actually proof that there is an original. Or I'll put it in a different way, if you walk down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, there are a lot of Gucci watches being sold for very cheap. Does the incredible variety of Gucci watches that are all fakes, does that prove that there is no such thing as an original Gucci watch? No, of course it doesn't. So the point doesn't stand that the whole variety of different gods or ideas of God means that there can't be a God. If anything, it would lean in the other direction. But we do still have to embrace or wrestle with this question, the split-second decision I'm putting before all of us today. Why this pea patch? Because Shammah had every reason to give up on his pea patch, didn't he? It looked like the God that supposedly he worshipped was not in control. It looked like this God who had promised peace and prosperity to his people was either powerless to provide it or absent or didn't care. And so he had every reason to be disappointed in God, first of all. He also had every reason to doubt himself. Thousands of Philistines coming over and only one of him. And he may have been a bit self-confident, but come on, no one believes that they could take on that size of an army, especially if their God is very absent and away and doesn't really care and powerless. But I think perhaps the thing that would have shaken Shammah the most and made him tempted to give up on this pea patch was the fact that all of his friends had just scarpered and run the other direction. You can imagine it, can't you? F farming the day before. They're all farming, they're all working hard, they're all sharing stories, and they're all talking about what's on the news. These Philistine attacks of different fields out there and out there. And they're all saying, hey, I, I would never run away. I would stand and fight if they came and attacked our land. You can imagine it, can't you? Very macho, very 
self-confident, and then in a moment, bang, they're all gone. Hypocrites. Shammah is left there having to make his own decision. Well, do I defend this thing on my own, or do I leave it for something else? I think Peter is writing to a similar, an audience with similar problems. He's writing to a group of, or a different, small groups of refugee Christians who are in different environments, and they are very much the minority. And yet they've heard this story about this Jesus chap who told his disciples, go out and make disciples of all nations. And they've heard the glory stories of huge numbers of people becoming Christians when the gospel is preached. And yet in their environments, they are the minority. And when they try to preach the gospel to people, no one listens. In fact, the society around them was turning against them. So they could have very good reason to start doubting God or the God of this Jesus character who was supposedly so powerful in the past, but for them seemed to be doing nothing. They also had every reason to doubt themselves, really, because their experience, I think, was not the same as what they expected. They had heard these amazing stories of people being filled with the Spirit, walking around and people being healed just by touching their shadow or just by touching a little bit of cloth that they had had. These amazing stories of healing and radical turnaround in the early church. And yet these communities maybe are trying their best but are seeing nothing happen. And it's going nowhere. So maybe if they even believed in that God who's powerful, they're starting to doubt themselves. Well, have I got all this wrong? Am I not faithful enough? Am I not strong enough? Am I not committed enough? They're doubting themselves. And then, perhaps they're doubting one another. Because the way that Peter writes in this, if you read between the lines, he tells them, look, all of you need to clothe yourself in humility. Read between the lines. What might have been going on? Some people were getting a bit puffed up and arrogant in that society, in that church, in that community. Some people were being a bit arrogant. Some people were trying to step on other people's toes. Some people were not honoring the government. Everyone was, people were potentially fighting in this community. And they're thinking, aren't we meant to be the people of God with the Holy Spirit living us? Why are people around me living so rubbish? And, they're not living up to what it should be to be a Christian. They're not impressing me. I'm surrounded by hypocrites. They'd had every reason to doubt and to be disappointed. And I think, to really labor the point, I think it's also the case in our culture. Now, I spend too much time on social media, on YouTube, and I see public deconstructions of the faith. There's relatively famous Christians who go out on YouTube and deconstruct the faith. They say, I'm no longer a Christian, or I'm no longer part of that group anymore. I've discovered my own thing, and this is the way to go. One of them publicly deconstructed his faith and said, I hate the capitalist idea of the church, and then he set up a uh, um, crowdfunding way for him to release his new book, and people started funding him that way. <laughs> Slightly ironic, but even if you haven't spent too much time on YouTube watching all of those deconstructions of faith, if you've been a Christian for a while 
and you care about people in the church, and you've pastored over the years, you will have seen people drift away. Start to take apart parts of the faith, leave them behind, and I think it's often because of a similar series of situations. One, they become disappointed with God. Why has God allowed this to happen to me? Because the thing was, many of these would have been Christians over the years, knowing that God has allowed many things to happen in this world that are awful and horrible, but when it happens to them individually, that's when it starts to shake. And that's understandable. We're people, we've got a personal relationship with God, and you start to doubt, is God even there? Does God even care? Is this version of God the real version of God that I should follow? Secondly, I think people look at themselves and they think, I am so far away from where I should be. If I'm a spirit-filled Christian who should be really revolutionizing the world for God and following God and being on mission, and yet I'm so reluctant in the workplace, and yet I'm so scared when it comes to sharing my faith or living out, or I'm really stuck in this pattern of sin and it seems to be getting worse, people start to doubt themselves. But I think the biggest area that I've heard, at least, from people's personal stories of why they deconstruct the faith is because they look at the church. And they say, I'm surrounded by people who are, who are not living up to the standard of what a Christian should be, who are not living that kind of life. They're not enthusiastic. They're not, they're not committed. They say in Bible studies, yes, this is really my passion and this is really my joy, but then they don't seem to be doing anything about it. I'm surrounded by hypocrites. And often these things, just small disappointments, lead to disillusionment and then deconstruction. And people slide away from the faith. Different elements get set aside, get dropped, get forgotten about, or don't seem very important. Sun worship, prayer, the word of God, fellowship with other Christians. These things are take it or leave it. We can get rid of those things. And people end up creating their own spiritual pea patches, their own versions of spirituality that maybe take some of the best bits from Christianity, but really take the best bits from everywhere. And they, they move away from this pea patch, and they start to establish their own pea patch over here somewhere. And can I just make a pastoral request? And I'm speaking to myself at the same time. If we see this in the church, if you see this in Friends, please don't act like the Philistine army and come down heavy on them. Please don't attack. Please don't get defensive. Please give someone the time and the honor and hear their story. Listen to what's happened to them. Understand where they're coming from. Understand that they probably will have been disappointed and let down. Because actually, I think it's once we start processing the story that we come to the solution. I think this is the key. Our stories, individually, our stories are incredibly important. But they're not the whole story. Our stories are vitally important, but they are not the whole story. Think about it like this. Um, in my middle, very middle class way, my mother had an allotment in Windsor. Um, an allotment is a patch of sort of 
large patch of land, like a large garden where you can grow crops, you can grow vegetables, that kind of thing. Everyone can spruce up their own allotment, and it's in a larger plot of allotments. And some of them were gorgeous. Like Some of these allotments were incredible. Um, and some of them were in absolute shambles, and our family's one was kind of in the middle. Some of them had like swimming pools, um, which is cheating, really, because you meant to grow potatoes. But Now imagine you had a beautiful allotment, the best allotment in all of the allotments. That plot was rubbish compared to yours. Yours was the best allotment in the plot. But then you heard that the council were planning to redevelop the entire plot. Versus if you had a pretty average allotment, or even a rubbish one, in a plot of land where the council said, we are going to preserve this plot, and we are going to protect it, and we are actually going to invest in all of these allotments to help make them better. Now, which allotment would you choose? The beautiful, incredible, best allotment in the plot of land that's just going to be redeveloped and dug over, or the rubbish allotment in the area of land and the plot of land that is going to be invested into and protected and preserved? Which one would you choose? I think it's obvious you would go for this one because this is in the correct plot, even though this one is so much better. We will look out there in the world and be far more impressed by other people's spirituality than our own. Again, you can go on YouTube, any social media, even books, and you will find people giving their versions of spirituality. And you will be amazed at how committed they are to their disciplines, how incredibly self-controlled they are, how it seems to be transforming their lives and their minds versus you. Maybe you've opened the Bible briefly once this week and then quickly closed it because you realized you had something else to do. Your prayers are utterances on your way to work and you don't quite know whether you were just thinking out loud or whether it was to God or not. You're trying to commit to church, but really everything else gets in the way. Now, I'm not saying there is an area for improvement for all of us in development, but what I am saying is I want to be in that plot not this allotment. And I think this is the key to under, understanding Shammer and why he thought his puny little pea patch was worth defending. Not because it was a lovely pea patch. It was about to get destroyed. But because it was part of God's bigger plan. He probably knew that God had made promises to Adam and Eve that they, men and women together, would fill this earth and take dominion over the earth and rule over the earth and have the whole earth under the plan of God. He will have known that that plan, or that they, Adam and Eve, and humanity failed at that point, but then God had made promises to Abraham to start again and say, I'm going to give you a slightly smaller plot of land called the Promised Land, and I'm going to give you a little patch. You can buy a patch of land in that larger patch of land. And your uh, ancestors, other way around, offspring, your children and their children and their children will inherit this larger plot of land at some point in the future. And they will remain faithful. And then Shammah would have known that God had made promises to David and said, I will make you king over this whole patch of land, the promised land. 
and you will rule over it, and there will be peace and prosperity here. And Shammah knew that he was part of that much bigger picture. And so it was worth defending this plot of land. His little pea patch, no matter how puny or unimpressive it was, was part of the much bigger plan of God. That's why it was worth defending with his life. And I'd like to call you guys and all of us to that understanding that there is a real God out there who is not a human creation and he has a much bigger plan than any one of our lives or even all of our lives put together. It brings me really weird comfort to know that if I give up on all of this, if I give up on Christianity, God won't give up on Christianity. If I abandon my faith, Jesus still will march on and own the world in the end and his kingdom will come even if I have nothing to do with it. Because our stories are important, but they're not the whole story. And the only way that you're going to stand firm in your funny little pea patch is if you know the bigger purpose and the bigger plan. What is that? Well, he says, this is the true grace of God. Now, the grace of God is a a phrase that is reasonably flexible in scripture because different authors might use that phrase in a slightly different way. It seems to me that Peter is using that phrase, the grace of God, um, in a way to kind of describe the large plan of God and the approach that God has decided to take on this world. What I mean by that, he, he says in chapter 1 verse 13, all of this is going to be fully revealed. The grace of God is going to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, I think, is this, that God chose to move on this world with mercy and favor before judgment and wrath. The world as it is has turned away from him completely and deserves destruction. It is condemned. It is already planned. The council have already planned. No, no, it's this one, wasn't it? This plot of land. (laughs) Don't get wrong the illustration. Um, They've already, God has already planned to overturn the world, to redevelop, to create a new world in place of the old. The old has turned away and proven itself to be decaying and defunct and useless. God is creating a new world. And he decided to not send in the Philistine army first and foremost to bring about destruction of the old world. He chose to send his son into the old world to save people out of the old into the new. That's the grand plan of God, the grace of God that I think Peter is talking about. This new world is going to be populated with people who made their little pea patches here but realized that actually the bigger thing is not worth staying. And they've decided to switch and join Jesus' side as the true king over all things. God has made every promise to Jesus So it's the plan that he has given to Jesus that is eventually going to be seen as the real plan. And anything in this plot will be gone. But God chose not to send in those Philistines. He chose to send his son to bring salvation to anyone who would trust in him and put their faith in him. And it's whether we align ourselves with that is the big question. So I want to ask, what is the pea patch 
that you are tempted to give up on? What is it that you're thinking, I'm, I, I can let this one slip? Is it regularly learning? I know there's an irony of the fact that you're already here, so sometimes preaching to the converted, but I think actually all of this is going in, on in our minds. Regularly learning from the Word of God, not really seeing the value of the Word of God for our own transformation. It's a slow shift from going from the Word of God being the main focus of our personal transformation. But because it's tricky to read, and because it seems outdated, and because so many attack this, but they don't attack books like Atomic Habits, or 12 Rules to Life, or other self-help books that are out there, perhaps our personal transformation actually should come from those primarily. Now, I'm not dismissing them as useless. I'm just saying this, Peter has said throughout, this is the source of personal transformation. But it can be tempting to not really defend that and not really stand in that pea patch. Or maybe it's just finding your place in church. You felt, you felt probably on the outside, on the outskirts for a while. You don't really see that you have a place in this church. It doesn't really matter whether you're here or whether you're not. And so you can do it at home. You can create your own version of church. And you move away from that. I think, again, that's why Peter puts so much emphasis on the value of the church and what the church truly is in his letter. Perhaps it's your marriage. I'm not saying that you're thinking necessarily of divorce, but you're tempted to drift away from closeness with your spouse. Work becomes perhaps a bit more important. Ministry, your personal ministry, your calling from God is more important than spending time with your family. And so those things take priority, and that, that really becomes the main thing, and you, you neglect to really stand firm and fight for the family that God has put you in and given to you. It may be your perseverance at work. I know many people here work in environments where it feels like you take one step forward and then two steps back. Nurses, I'm, I'm related to uh, two nurses. I just, I, I couldn't keep going. Even if God had called me to it, it's the sense that you, yeah, you see one person leave the door, go out of the door happy and smiling, but you see two people go out in a coffin, and you think, what on earth is the point of this? So it might be just the type of work that you're doing that makes it so hard to stand firm and to remain faithful and believe that God might have called you there. But it might even be your own personal efforts to witness or to, to show your colleagues what it means to be a Christian or to share with them, whatever it might be, and it just has been hitting a brick wall constantly. And so the temptation is to just, I'll give this one up. What is the pea patch? Maybe it's staying free of an addiction. Some people in our family, church family, who have had remarkable transformation as they have gone through maybe the steps course that we've run or they've sought external help, and you are doing incredibly well, fighting an addiction that had a hold on you, and now you feel like you've got a hold on it, and you are doing well because of the power of the Spirit in you. But the honeymoon period is over, perhaps, and it doesn't quite feel worth standing firm anymore. Can I just say to you, God's message to you today, I think, is this. Stand firm. Stand firm in your pea patch. 
This is the true grace of God. This experience you're going through, this reality that we've been going through in the letter of 1 Peter, this hardship that you're experiencing, the challenges that come with being a Christian and wanting to follow Jesus in his bigger plan, it is tough, but it is the true grace of God. And I think we've got Grandfather Peter writing to us, saying to us as an older man, exhorting and declaring to us, this is the true grace of God. He's pleading with you. That's the Greek word there, parakleo. It's doing the same as what the Holy Spirit does in your life. Getting alongside you, putting an arm around and saying, come on, we can do this. You can stand firm. It's declaring, it's the, the same word as the word martyr. Peter's saying, from my own personal experience, I know you can stand firm. I've been through this. I preached the best sermon ever preached. Saw 3,000, huge numbers of people converted on one day. And now I'm a fellow elder in Rome, and things don't seem to be as prosperous as they used to be. I know the feeling, he's saying. But this is still the true grace of God. This is the plan of God. I'm convinced of it. I know it. I've experienced it. Let's stand firm. And so, just three things that I think he does to help them stand firm. He says to them, I know where you are, so God knows where you are. Think about it. These are small little groups of refugee Christians dotted around in nowhere. And then there's this head honcho, the big man in Rome, Peter, the first and biggest, perhaps, apostle. And he's bothered to write to you. Imagine seeing a letter written, handwritten by the king, and it arrives at your door, and they've named you. The, the leader of the movement who knew Jesus personally has bothered to write to you in your funny little community. Just that is a demonstration. If he cares that much about you, how much more does God care about you in your situation? How much more does God know what you're going through? Paul says, uh, Peter says, sorry, I know how you feel and so does Christ. Christ in heaven knows how you feel. He knows the experience you're going through. You can stand firm. And then finally, he says, I'm certain it all ends well, so you can be as well. Look, even if your pea patch is flattened by you trying to stand firm in it, your inheritance in heaven is not touched. It is secure, and it's ready and waiting for you, so you can stand firm. I've just got a quote from a lady online who I don't have a clue who she is, and I think this reinforces my point. She wrote this, which I find an amazing quote on her blog, and I think this is the point. It's not about how big Peter was or anything like that. It's about the faithful little pea patch. She said, God didn't ask Shammah to save the world. He only asked him to defend his pea patch. Shammah simply stood faithful, and his moment came. In the heat of the battle, that moment was all there was, and he won a great victory for Israel that day. That's all God is asking you to do today encouraging you, getting alongside you and saying, you can do this. Stand firm and you will win a great victory for God today. 
in the decision that you make today, you will win a great victory for God. Band, can you come up and I'll, I'll pray. Why don't we stand, get ready to sing. And I feel like actually just before the story about this guy Shammah and his funny little pea patch is a prayer from David reflecting on his life and he says this, which I think is essentially him saying it was God all along. After David's many great victories, he says this, you God have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps and my feet did not slip. Lord, this is all you. In the end, it's all what you've done. It's all what you're going to be doing through us as we stand firm. Us on our own, we can never do it. But with the Holy Spirit now coming and helping us, we can be mighty warriors, victorious in God. We are more than conquerors because of Christ and all that he's done. So Lord, whatever that split-second decision that people need to make today, enable them to make it, enable them to stand firm, and enable us to praise you at the end, saying, in the end, it was God. It was all God. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.